Where's Bristol at? Give Bristol a round of applause. He got hit by a car. He was driving a bicycle, experienced a hit and run. But we're going to get that guy. We're going to get that guy. He's concussed right now. He doesn't even know he's in the room. But he is here worshiping with us. We are glad that you guys are here. Give each other a high five around you for being here tonight. Look at the person next to you and say, look at the person next to you and say, I am glad that you are here. Now say, you look very nice tonight. Unless you're sitting beside someone you like, we don't encourage that. Just kidding. Josh, take the compliment. Now say, I hope you had a good week. Now say, shut it. We got to get going. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. This is week 6 of Love Well. Week 6, man, that's crazy. And it's 65 degrees outside. It's warming up, right? It's almost summer. We are excited about that. Uh, we are going to have a good night. I want to just, uh, by the show of hands, get a feel for uh, who we're talking to. How many of you have siblings, younger, older siblings? Okay, so a lot of you. How many of you are single children? You just come from a single home. Okay, awesome, awesome. Now, tonight... We are going to discuss sibling rivalry and sibling, uh, sibling relationships underneath the gospel. So how many of you, just being honest, have siblings that annoy you, bother you, frustrate you, they're hard to love, right? All right, put your hands down. If you do not have siblings, track with me anyway, because uh, one day you might have children, and you might have multiples, and even still, it will be an encouragement to you as we go to the Word. First John chapter 3 is where we're getting kicked off. Uh, I'm going to be uh, at least attempting to uh, be transparent with you tonight, because I've got a sister, and that has not always gone well. Uh, it's going very well right now, but it hasn't always gone well, so I'll share with you some of my experiences uh, some of my experiences, and maybe you'll uh, glean something from those, and maybe you'll resonate with those, and maybe you have your own. But as God's Word speaks to you, I'm just praying uh, that you will be challenged with God's Word, and that God's Word will uh, be breathed into you in such a way that it would change the relationships that you carry with your siblings, regardless of where they are right now, regardless of how rocky it may be, regardless of how annoying they might be. They always leave the toilet seat up. They leave hair in the bathroom sink. They never respect my space, they're always taking my stuff, they annoy me, they bother me, there are tattletales, whatever it may be in the room, my prayer is that under the power of God's word, influenced by the gospel, your relationships would gain traction and would grow in Christ-likeness, so we're going to get going uh, in 1 John chapter 3. I've got one sister, she is older, uh, and we have probably had a uh, you could say a, an extremely difficult relationship for uh, pretty much our whole lives until about three or four years ago, and now she's one of my closest friends, and I respect her more than almost anybody on the face of the earth. So uh, I pray that the gospel will work on you guys in such a way that you'll be able to say that. And if you have strong relationships with your brothers and sisters, that that would be encouraged and spurred on through tonight's message, and that if you do not have strong relationships with brothers and sisters, that you would be spurred in such a way that it would change 
the way you interface with one another. So 1 John chapter 3, we're just going to take this one verse at a time, starting in verse 11. Uh, and the first verse says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Love Well is a 13-week series, and all of it ends with you need to love people, and you need to love them well, because Christ has so loved you, and he has so loved you well. That is the point. That is the end destination of every sermon, and every sermon that we're going to for the next seven weeks is intended to bring out the difficulties that are involved in loving different groups of people, challenging ourselves with the authority of the gospel, the story of the gospel, in order to encourage us to act like Christ would act towards people that they may see him. So what we've said from the beginning is that if you're looking for love, which we all are, you must go to God because John, 1 John 4 says that God is love. If you're looking for him, he is love. We watched the video the first week where a ton of people were asked, what do you think love is? And everybody had a different answer. Some people said it's an emotion. Some people said it's a feeling. Some people said it's, it's something that bubbles up inside of you. Some people said it's when you're like-minded and like someone. That guy's a moron. Some people said that, some people said that it's, it's when, you, when you're just feeling excited. It's butterflies. It's all these different things. But in reality, if you want to nail it down, if you want to simplify yet also complex things in such a way that it is beautifully profound, you have to go to God's word where it clearly says that God is love. And we're all looking for love. And the only place that it may be found is in God because he is love. And the tragedy of our universe is that God loves the world, that God pursues the world, that God has sent his son into the world who has bled for the world, who has suffered for the world, died for the world, and was raised for the good of the world and the glory of his name. Yet the world, desiring love, what can only be found in him, continues to run in the opposite direction yet he faithfully pursues. That's the beauty of it. So what we said the first week is that God is love. What we said the second week is that God is love, but our hearts, before we come to Christ, we don't want anything to do with that. That all of us, every single one of us, no one better than anyone else, have all ran away in such a way that we have used the lives that we've been given to sin against the one who pursues us thinking that there are better valleys on the other side, that there is more to be had in our sin, that the things of this world are more engaging and more satisfying than he is engaging and satisfying. And this is heartbreaking because all the while God is pursuing you in love and he's sustaining you in life. That blows my mind every time I even think about the fact that God loves in such a way that he sends his son, he allows his son to be crucified, he crushes his son on the cross he raises his son up and through the power of that gospel he pursues lost men and women who want nothing to do with him that use the lives that they've been given to sin against him they blaspheme against him with their lives and with their words all the while thinking they can find something better than him and all the while being ignorant to the truth that only he satisfies the inward depths of your soul so God is love. He has pursued us in love. We have hated him in our sins. Now, I've got some church kids in here. Some of you aren't church kids, but if you're a church kid, I'm a church kid. No one's better than anyone else, but if you're a church kid, sometimes it's hard to think of your heart before you came to Christ as being hateful towards God. 
Because a lot of you grew up in this. A lot of you would say, I don't know a day when I wasn't, I wasn't in the church and I wasn't learning about the love of God and I wasn't praying and reading my Bible and growing and I was baptized early and I, I memorized all the verses at Awana and I, I got all the stickers and I've just been in this for so long. I don't think that my heart actually hated God. And this is what I would say to you. Your sins, the sins that you've committed, the reason that Christ went to the cross is not just because you've done certain things that are wrong. If it's just what you've done on the outside, then maybe it would be true that some people are better than other people and some people are worse than others. If God simply sent his son only to die for what you've done, then maybe church kids look better than everyone else. But let's take that excuse away for a second. It's not just what you've done. It's who you are. And that's important. It's not just what you've done. It's who you are. Which is why Ephesians 2 must speak into us if we're to frame up the gospel properly. It says that you were by nature children of wrath deserving recipients of punishment, heathens and hellions walking to the tune of your own sinful ways. It's not just that you've lied. It's not just that you've stolen. It's not just that you have done certain things wrong. The truth, the real problem, the heart of the issue is the heart itself, that your heart born into this world was born under the curse of sin and you naturally walked that way. It's not just what you've done. It's who you are. And the Bible says that before you come to Christ, everybody is the same, which means when you flip on the news in the morning, I'm guessing that not many of you watch the news, but maybe mom or dad watches it and it's on. Or maybe when you go to school and you experience even some of the horrors that you face every day in your hallways, if something attests to your soul that says, this just isn't right, it doesn't feel right, something's wrong here, something's misplaced, I don't feel like I can get enough, I don't feel like I'm satisfied, what's my purpose in this world, I just can't quite figure it out. That's evidence that what is within you is broken and is in need of a complete remake, a complete new life. It's not just what you've done, it's who you are. You being a rebel, God being love, has pursued you in Christ. And Christ endured the wrath of God that you deserved and I deserved so that we may go free. If you would catch this, it would change you. I promise you. If you would understand this element of the gospel, if you would stop playing games with it, if you would get this right here, it would change you. Mainly that you could do nothing for God, yet he sent his son anyway. And Christ endured what you and I deserved to endure so that we would not have to. And in the power of his sacrifice and in the power of his resurrection he's not just removed your sinful deeds away from you but he has remade the soul within you to be a masterpiece before him that when God the father looks at you he sees his son and there's no condemnation there's nothing that God sees his son in you and he looks at you and sees a blameless individual perfect and holy in the gospel. But I'm not, but I'm still struggling, but I'm, I'm fighting sin and I'm tempted. We may be. 
We may be continuing to fight. We are still being sanctified. We are still struggling in this world. But God has taken what was broken within us and remade it in such a way that God's glory in the salvation of his son encapsulates us forever, that we are found there, that it never depends on us, but that it always depends on him, which is why even in my failure, I can praise him, knowing that he reigns victorious always, knowing that I don't earn anything from him. I've been given everything by him, knowing that even in my hypocrisy and even in my shame and even in my struggle, God continues to lavish his love on me, knowing that God's never gonna love me more when I clean it up or when I get fixed or when I'm all the way better. God can't love me more. He can't love me less. He's lavished it upon me in his son. If you get that, it's gonna free you up. It's gonna free you up if you understand that right now the God of heaven, who you could do nothing to impress and nothing to earn, the God of heaven has lavished his love upon those who are in Christ and there's no condemnation for you. There's nothing that God would see you and he would love you and he would purify you, and he would uphold you and sustain you one day to glorify you forever, to be with him with no shame, no guilt, no sin on your record. You have been cleared forever. That is tremendous, over-the-top love. He has loved you so very well. We could stop right there, but we're not, because we got brothers and sisters in the room, and we need to talk about it. What we said was that God who lavishes love upon us, north to south, he rebuilds what we have destroyed, he remakes what we have broken, he has fixed what we have tore to pieces, and out of the overflow of what God has given us, now made responsible to love one another. That's the point of the series, that we would understand what God has done, and because God has done this, and because he has overcome, and because he has loved us so very well, we are to, in his love, love other people that they too may see him. And last week we talked, starting with moms and dads. Maybe your mom and dad was here, maybe your mom and dad was not here. Whoever it is that has guardianship over you, you have a responsibility to start right there, to love them well well, to care for them well, to uphold them and to point them towards Christ in the way you live your lives and the way you treat them and the way you treat the people around you, that this is essentially where mission starts. And that's crucial for you to understand that mission starts at home. Mission starts at home. You cannot expect the God of heaven to honor your missional outreach to your friends and to the world and to the people around you if you're not willing to be authentically loving your mom and dad at home, that that's where it must start. And tonight we're going to talk about siblings. So we know since the beginning, not only of Love Well, but since the beginning of this book and since the beginning of the gospel itself, we have been called to love one another. And tonight we're going to talk about what that means for siblings. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. How many of you have ever read the story of Cain and Abel? Anybody read that story? Okay, Cain is the firstborn of Adam and Eve. So we've got like the first man on the block. Another son comes shortly after named Abel. And what we know about these two men were that Cain was a man of the ground. That he uh, sowed the soil and he reaped the harvest while Abel was a shepherd. He oversaw the flocks. And Cain one day brought a sacrifice to God of fruit. And Abel brought a sacrifice to God of a blameless, bl- a blemishless uh, sheep. And God 
looked upon the sacrifices and said, Abel, I have found pleasure in this, but Cain, I find no pleasure in this. You have not done well. Cain, being filled with wrath because Abel was uh, successful in offering sacrifice to God and he, not being successful, one day raised up in the field and just killed Abel, just pulverized him. And the first murder went into the ground and God approached Cain and says, where why, why, do you, why do you do this? Why do you do this thing? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the soil. Now, some of you have broken homes, but this might not be on your record. Hopefully not yet, right? Uh, like, the worst I do is, like, mess up my sister's room when she's not looking. But Cain, that dude's for real. Like, he's not messing around. The hatred towards his brother is serious. Um, what he's doing here is pulling an example, and we need to keep that in our minds because oftentimes when men and women are left to themselves, Themselves, their relationships reveal the brokenness that is within them. When two people who are broken try to do relationship together, regardless of it's a mom and a child, a father and a child, or siblings or friends, when two individuals who are broken try to do relationship with each other, it always results in brokenness. Always. So when he brings this example, he's showing us two individuals who clearly resulted in brokenness because they themselves were broken. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world will hate you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We're actually going to talk about this passage for the next two weeks because we're going to talk about what it means for our families and then we're going to talk about what it means for our family, our collective body, the local church here at Jersey and beyond, the local church in this world. But we want to stop right here. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. I want to say something to you, and if it sounds harsh, if it sounds over the top, you can talk to me after, or you can read the word for yourself. I believe this to be 100% true. If there is nothing in your soul right now that loves him, if there is no desire to walk in obedience, if there is nothing in you that would see it fit to love the people around you as Christ has loved you. If you have no pleasure whatsoever in pursuing the king of glory or being loved by the king of glory or reciprocating love for the king of glory or pouring that love on other people, then most likely you have never actually met this king that takes dead men and makes them alive. Most likely, you have never met him. If there is nothing in your soul that has love, that reciprocates towards him and is poured out on others, if you have no desire to walk after him, if there's no experience, if there's nothing in you that screams to his fame in your life, you most likely don't know him. And the Bible's brutal about this, that whoever doesn't love, whoever doesn't experience this, and whoever doesn't give it, they abide in death. We know for the brotherhood, for those who are in Christ, we know that we are in him mainly because he has set his signature factor on those who are in him, and that is the signature of love. That love is the signature, the symbol, the experience that is reciprocated out that evidences what has occurred within. That a love for God, a relationship being reestablished in love, and a love for people 
It is a symbolic and it is a real action that happens for the people of God that allows us to know who our real brothers and sisters are in the Lord. The problem is, is a lot of people in our world, and maybe some of you here, have played a game for a long time. You've been in church, you've been a good kid, you've worked hard, you've gotten good grades, you've done what you were supposed to do, you've tried not to smart off, you've, you've memorized some passages, you read the Bible when you think about it, but you've never actually fallen in love with God or seen his love out over you in your salvation and there's nothing in you that would be motivated by the true gospel but rather you're simply playing games if there's nothing if there's nothing then you may begin to think about your transformation that you claim to have had if there's nothing in you that would attest to the fact that God has poured himself out over you and saved you, then you need to start asking yourself the question, when was I transformed? When did I meet Christ? Did I surrender my life? Have I been playing a game? If there's nothing in you, you need to begin to ask these questions. They will surely scare you, but it's necessary for the good of your souls, you need to work through these things. Because the Bible's clear. If there's no love, if there's nothing in you that would attest to God's love for you, reciprocate that love back with a desire for obedience, if that has never been in place, if it's not in place now, it may be because you've never been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It may be that you've never walked from death into life. It may be because Christ's resurrection power doesn't flow through you. And if that is the case, then you need to repent and you need to trust. Because the Bible says, whoever would believe in me, I will be faithful and just to forgive and save. You'll experience God's strong arms reaching into you. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer that no one can claim to love God and hate his brother now this speaks to the church because we are brothers and sisters in the Lord but it would also speak to our families especially those families where both siblings know Christ so let's let's discuss this for a second how many of you have had some really rough times with your brothers and sisters they're annoying how many of you are annoyed by little brothers or sisters how many are you annoyed by older brothers and sisters? Okay. How many of those brothers or sisters are in the room right now? Now look around. People are telling on each other, all right? Some of you are going, when we get home, I'm telling mom. If you do, you're a tattletale and a punk, all right? Hide under a rock. That's embarrassing. Now, we have times with our brothers and sisters that are extremely difficult. So let's, let's I want to share my story with you. Um, my sister is named Madison. Uh, right now, uh, she's possibly one of the smartest people I know, one of the most gifted people I know, uh, one of the most talented people I know, one of the most heart people, uh, heartfelt people that I know. I love her dearly. She's one of my closest friends. I talk to her every day. I love my sister. But she was born into the world, and then I was born into the world. And once I grew enough to understand the people around me, I was pretty certain that the milkman dropped her off. That certainly she could not be my sister. 
I looked at her and thought, ugh, no. I do not like you. There are a couple reasons why I struggled with my sister. Maybe you'd resonate with some of these. Madison is pretty talented. Um, I would be more considered the child in our home that caused my mom and dad probably more frustration. And Madison was the sibling in our home that, that for the most part, did what she was supposed to do. Man, that made me mad. I'd be, get, I'd be getting in trouble. I'd be lying, cheating, stealing, doing all kinds of things I wasn't supposed to be doing. Like this little four-year-old is a rebel. And Madison, she just like walked on the clouds to some extent. And even when she did things that were bad, never got caught. Anybody ever been around someone like this? Maybe we're all being ignorant, but everybody seems to feel that pressure, right? Where it seemed like I was always getting in trouble and Madison was never getting in trouble. Madison got good grades. I did not get good grades. Madison had a lot of friends. I was struggling with friends. Madison never seemed to make mom and dad mad, yet every time dad looked at me, there was this big vein that started bulging on his forehead because I had done something I was not supposed to do. Madison and I had a lot of arguments. You ought to talk to her about it. Next time she's coming for summer camp, she's going to be teaching our ladies. You ought to, you ought to talk to Madison about our, our uh, experiences growing up. It was pretty rough. Um, when I was 16, we moved to Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, if you have talked to me or you know of my family, our family, um, I grew up in the church. My grandpa was a pastor. My uncle's a pastor. My dad uh, toured with the Christian rock band and did ministry. And my mom's been worship uh, leader. And, and, and I, I love my family. But at the same time, my mom came from a pretty broken story. And her brokenness uh, has been a challenge for her. And it's been a challenge for my dad. And they have had some difficulties. So if you have a family where mom and dad have difficulties, uh, we had some pretty sincere difficulties. When I turned 16, we moved to Lynchburg, and I was living at home, and I was in high school, and Madison had just graduated high school and was living on campus at Liberty, so she wasn't around as much, and I didn't have any friends, uh, so when mom and dad really started to go through some relational turbulence, I had to be in the home, and I experienced the brute force of that, but Madison wasn't there, and she was off on campus, and she was succeeding on campus, but I didn't feel like she understood what it was like to be at home. And I felt like I was alone, and she felt like I was being dramatic, and it was an extremely difficult season. So what at one time was rocky in our relationship, simply because relationally we just didn't seem to get it, it turned into this really big disconnect between her and I because we were viewing the world very differently. Because I was handling the situation with my mom and dad differently than she was handling it. I was struggling in ways that she did not seem to be struggling with. And it got bad to the point that we didn't really even really like to speak to each other. Didn't really want to be around each other. Uh, and it broke my mom and dad's heart. Probably added more stress to what was already a rocky relationship than ever needed to be. Madison and I had an extremely difficult season. Uh, we were uh, forced to ride in a car together from Lynchburg to Millersburg, and uh, I was dreading that like uh, real bad. Oh my goodness, eight hours with Madison. I just don't want to be in this car. I don't want to spend this time with her. We got on the road. I know that sounds terrible, but that's exactly where I was. Bitter, angry, frustrated, I was mad at what was happening at home. I was mad that Madison didn't understand. She was supposed to be there. She wasn't there. Just bitter about the whole thing. We got on the road. Said nothing for the first three hours. Like not a word. 
stopping getting gas. We're not speaking. And I don't know what happened. But we were about 45 minutes south of Charleston, and I just broke down and started to weep. Just wept like uncontrollably, make, your, make the people around you uncomfortable weep. I, to this day, have no clue what God did. But as we moved through that, like no word, no words, just wept uncontrollably. And when we got through that, every time I looked at Madison, I was overwhelmed by love for her and love that she reciprocated to me, our relationship has never been the same. I don't know what happened there. Can't explain it. I don't understand it. But God did something in me. He broke through that darkness and that uh, bitterness towards her, and the difficulties in our relationship just destroyed those things and lavished mercy and grace upon really dry soil. And when he did so, it changed everything for us. So I've been in that spot where it's like, she annoys me to the place where it was like, I don't want to be around her at all. To where now I'm in the place where underneath the gospel's power, God's just really given us a great relationship. And it's a blast. It's awesome. I love my sister. Not only that, but now that I'm in such a relationship with her, we get to see her here at Jersey pour out her heart for the good of you all, specifically young ladies. God's redemptive power works in beautiful ways. This is what we know, though. In my bitterness, in my frustration, in my difficulties there, I was not exemplifying a heart that truly loved Christ. I was not living a transformed life like God would have me. Do you think in that place I could have ever gone to Madison and said, Madison, do you see the love of Christ in my life and in the way I treat people? No. This is the worst part. I was preaching that entire time. I was teaching God's word that entire time. And all the while, I couldn't even get along with the one individual that God had put in my life to help spur me towards him. If you went to your sister or your brother and you asked them this question, does the way I treat you reflect a life that has been transformed by the gospel? And the answer that you would receive back is no, then you have done wrong. You have done wrong. And you need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to stop being selfish. You need to serve that sibling. Love that sibling. Support that sibling. Uphold that sibling. And treat them as Christ would. Because it's not about you. Now if you would stop right here and go, but you don't know. You don't know who my brother or sister is. I don't need to know. If you're like, Oh, we have to share a bathroom, and every morning she takes so long that I can't get in there, and I'm trying to do my hair because i got a girlfriend, I'm trying to impress her, and she won't let me through the bathroom. I don't care. Stop being a child. Even if it's to the point that your sibling has actually wronged you, where it's not just a, a little menial thing, but it's literally my sibling, they've wronged me. They've hurt me. They've betrayed me. They're not for me. They don't love me. They don't trust me. 
treat me right. Even so, God would make you responsible to love them as Christ has loved you. What if Christ gauged his pursuit of us based on our performance before him? What if Christ looked at the world and said, I'm only going to come for the people that are sort of good. I'm only going to come for the people that are somewhat impressive. No one in this room would be included. Aren't you thankful that God has loved you in spite of your wickedness? Aren't you thankful that God has sent his son to spill his blood in spite of the fact that we are screw-ups? So who, do, who makes us the king or the prince or the queen or the princess or the ruler? Who's given us the authority to say who we'll love and who we won't love? Who's made us responsible to be able to say, you know what, you've gone too far, I've got no more love for you. I don't care, I don't want to love you, I don't want to respect you, I don't want to trust you. I want nothing for you. For those of you who are in Christ, you don't have that right. And you were not made ruler over who you will love and steer towards Christ and who you won't. And frankly, we don't have time for Christians who become overwhelmed with bitterness or frustration in such a way that they simply refuse to love. We don't have time for that because the people around us, maybe your siblings themselves, they need to see Jesus because when they see him, their lives can be transformed and when they don't, it can't. We must love one another. It is the signature that God has put on his people. By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, this is super challenging because most of you like to live lives that are for you, for your good, for your gain, for your comfort, for your peace, for your experience, for your satisfaction. Most of you, including me, a lot of times, Live lives that are for ourselves. But a signature act of God is love that is selfless. So what would happen in your home if you started putting the needs of your siblings above your own? What would happen? Harmony. Peace. Grace. In relationships that were pointing upwards to God, not away from Him. What if you started to live this way? It would change things. And if you started to live this way, you would start getting more free, not more held under bondage. But if anyone, as the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? For God has given you everything. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In deed and truth. Here are some applications for you, and we'll wrap this thing down. Loving siblings, here are some things you can do. I don't know what this looks like, and this sounds pretty challenging, and you don't know my brother or sister because they're super annoying, and maybe that might be true, but here are some practical steps affirm them 
Let's speak to brothers. Let me speak to brothers. Outside of your dads, you are one of the most important, influential individuals in your sister's lives to point them towards Jesus. The way you affirm them, love them, and support them will either point them towards Christ or away from Christ. Brothers, you have a serious, serious challenge on your hands and a serious responsibility to love your sisters. You need to affirm them. You need to support them. You need to listen to them. You need to pray for them. And you need to be intentional with them. Sisters, brothers don't like mushy-gushy. They don't like you pinching their cheeks if they're smaller than you. They don't like you going, doop, 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 doop. they don't like that. They, they have, we have never liked that. I don't know where that evolved from, but that has never been cool. Always against the man code. Love your brothers, sisters, if you have brothers. Love your brothers by affirming them, supporting them. Listening to them, praying for them, and being intentional with them. What, what could this look like for us? Affirming them. What do your siblings like to do? What do they enjoy? Have you ever even taken time to look at what they're good at? What they enjoy? What, what stirs them up? Go to those places and affirm them in those things. Encourage them in what they're doing. Support them. It's not going to kill you to sit through a performance or watch an activity or listen to a song or have a conversation. Support them. Listen to them. Pray for them. This is one that you miss. How many of you pray daily? Close your eyes once. How many of you daily intercede on your siblings' behalf in prayer, asking God to bless them, asking God to uphold them, to protect them, and to stir their souls. How many of you daily pray for your siblings? All right. How many of you would say it's a struggle to pray, or I just really don't think about praying for my siblings? Okay. A lot of us. All right. Open up your eyes. This is an old trick, but it's worked for me every single time. When you find bitterness in your relationship, for the people around you. I promise this will work if you go at it from a sincere heart. When your heart is bitter towards someone, when you hear the challenge to love your brothers and sisters, and it's like, oh, I can't. They're so annoying or frustrating or they've hurt me so bad. This would be my challenge to you. Start here. Start with prayer. Because you can't honestly intercede on someone's behalf, praying for them and upholding them while holding on to bitterness in your soul. You can't. If you pray for their good, God will remove from you your bitterness. If you pray for their joy, God will take from you your frustration. If you pray for their promotion, for their gain, for their good, God will take from you the annoyances that drive you insane to the point that you can't relationally love them. Start with prayer. Begin to uphold your siblings in prayer. Lift them up intercede on their behalf and be intentional with them no relationship gets fixed overnight no relationship goes from bad to good instantly and no relationship grows strong 
without two individuals intentionally pursuing each other. So with, this, with my sister, with my sister, with Madison, we got to talk every day. Sometimes that's annoying. Sometimes it's annoying because I've got things that I need to do. Why can't I take the day off? Because Madison and I aren't going to grow in relationship if we're, no, we're both not being intentional. We're just not going to get any better if we don't pursue each other, love each other, and care for each other. So you need to be intentional. You need to do it even if they refuse to receive it. You need to do it even if it's not noticed. You need to do it even if it's misunderstood. You need to do it even if you don't get praise for it. You need to do it even if it doesn't seem like it's working. You need to do it mainly because God has called you to do this. May your homes be homes of peace, not turbulence. May the gospel mission to make disciples start at home and work its way out from there. May we be people that receive God's blessing because we're authentic from the field to the hallways of our schools to our classrooms all the way into our homes. That everywhere we would exemplify Christ's enormous out of control love that he has so given to us. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you for the blessing of this day. God, I pray uh, that although the challenge you've given us is hard and it's difficult and some days it's really difficult, I pray a blessing of power over students right now, God. I just lift them all up to you. Uh, those who have siblings and those who come from uh, single child homes, God, I would lift them up to you right now. I pray that you would encourage their spirits. May the gospel be fresh wind in their sails. May we move forward in mission as you have called us to love, as you have called us to pursue, as you have called us to care, as you have called us to connect, as you have called us to pour ourselves out for the good of our brothers and our sisters. God, would you give us the power that it takes to do just that? As hard as it is, God, they're broken. We're broken. It will only be through the power of your gospel that we can do this thing. It will only be through the breath of your might, your strength working in us, empowering us to do what you would have us to do. So Lord, I pray encouragement in this place over students. I pray power in this place over students. I pray grace over this place for students. May you begin to put homes back together, relationships being strengthened, brothers and sisters who don't know the Lord, who aren't in this place, who aren't connecting with the church, who aren't loving you, who aren't pursuing you, who really want nothing to do with you. May the students in this room, may brothers and sisters in this room begin to affirm, love, support, encourage, care for, and pray for their lost brothers and sisters, that these lost brothers and sisters would see you at work in the lives of their siblings that they may also come to know your goodness and your grace for them, that the family would expand, that you would save, that kingdom expansion would occur. We love you, King Jesus, and we praise you. This can only be done through you, so help us. We desperately need your help in this place. Help us when we can go no further and encourage us when we're weak. May we walk in obedience, and may obedience be glorifying to you and may you increase our joy in the action 
It's for your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Um, maybe we do this. Um, how many of you have um, brothers or sisters that uh, don't know the Lord? Or to your knowledge, they, they, don't, they don't know the Lord. Okay. Um, for those of you that, that are in that spot, I want you to take this time of worship to pray for them. And if someone around you raised their hand, maybe you just put your hand on their shoulder and you pray as well. You pray that that individual would be a testimony of Christ's love. And for the rest of you, maybe you take this time. If you come here, that's great. This place is always open for you. Don't make a show of it. Come here to actually pray that the Lord would strengthen you and encourage you. Deal with things. If you've wronged your brothers and sisters, if you treated them wrongly, maybe you come here and just lay that down. But in this time of worship, worship the God that empowers you to do what he would call you to do and pray that he strengthens you in your task, that we would truly emulate Christ's love for our brothers and sisters. May it be a sweet time of worship. Stand and let's go, gang.